0: Well, uh, it's good to be back among the land of the living. Um, I have been down, and I'm so grateful for Kent Stainback at the last second to step in and do such a, a wonderful, wonderful job, and uh, so I'm so grateful, though, to at least be able to be back with you. So for just this one Sunday after the service, I, I won't be able to kiss you on the lips, uh, just to let you know that. Um, Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, all right. You can't, Kent wants to know if I can do that over. (laughs) Mentioning his name, I guess, and bragging on him around the world on the internet. So, we are in the book of Genesis, right? And we're in Genesis chapter 50. And if you happen to be visiting today, we're thrilled you're here and you're catching us at the end of a verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis It's taken us a couple of years at least uh, to go through this book. And so we finally come now to the last chapter, though we're not going to be able to finish it all today. So you've got to come back next Lord's Day. But we're in Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 today. And the title of this message is, A Time to Weep a time to mourn, how true to life this is. I want to begin by reading the passage for you. I trust you have your Bible in front of you and open. You'll always get so much more out of the message as you have a Bible open in front of you. And the Word of God reads, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept with him, or for him, 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to his household to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please Let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, And his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizrael, Mizraim, Mizraim, Which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had brought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the reading of God's inspired word. It has much to say to us today. Let us go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that we are not left to live our Christian lives on just feelings or the traditions of men, or on dreams or visions, or things like this that have no substance, but that you have left us with your written word, that your Holy Spirit inspired every text that is recorded for us in the Bible, and it is pure truth, unvarnished, unadulterated truth. In every passage of Scripture, we believe is profitable for us. And so I pray as we look at this scene of the burial of Jacob that you would speak directly to us and that there would be much for us to take home with us as we would live this out. So, Father, we ask now... For your assistance, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be actively at work in both the preacher and the listener. In Jesus' name, Amen. The title of this message is A Time to Weep, a Time to Mourn. In these verses we see the burial of Jacob in the land of Canaan. And most specifically we see the weeping and the mourning and the sorrow, the heart-rending sorrow of Joseph and his brothers over the death of Jacob. And we learn from these verses that even we as believers are not exempt from the from the loss of loved ones and from the sorrows of life. Being a Christian does not mean that we have no trouble and no trials. Neither does it mean that we never have to bury our parents or face difficult times. We, too, will suffer just like the world suffers over many things that we hold in common. Throughout the Bible, believers are told that they will suffer much in this world. Job suffered the loss of his entire wealth. And then he suffered the loss of seven sons and three daughters all at once. And then he was inflicted with boils all over his body. And he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth by God's own estimate. Stephen was stoned to death for simply preaching the Bible. James was put to death with a sword. Daniel ended up in the lion's den Ezekiel was taken hostage and carried to a foreign land where he lived in exile. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned and was abducted and taken to Egypt. John was confined to the Isle of Patmos where he suffered hard labor in basically a concentration camp. The Apostle Paul, time does not permit us to to walk through the trials and tribulations of the Apostle Paul, but he endured beatings and imprisonments, lashes with the whip and with rods, shipwreck. He was literally drugged through the streets of, of Philippi. Job said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Solomon said there is an appointed time for everything, that God in his sovereignty has appointed what will take place in our lives as it unfolds. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to weep and a time to mourn. These have been sovereignly foreordained by God for the schedule of our lives. Jesus acknowledged, in this world, you shall have tribulation. And Paul tells us to weep with those who weep. We are actually commanded to to weep with others in their weeping. And James says, consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter them but when you encounter them. Even Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. And Isaiah records of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Bible tells it like it is. The Bible never sugarcoats its message. Uh, The Bible tells us not necessarily what we want to hear at all times, but what we need to hear so that we can live our lives productively. And what the Bible teaches us is that as we live our Christian lives in this world, there will be much difficulty, and there will be trials, and there will even be the loss of loved ones even our parents. And this is exactly where Joseph and his brothers find themselves in this passage, that even as believers, they are suffering with deep sorrow over the death of their father, Jacob. The same will be true for you as well, my friend. The time will come for you to face sorrows in this life you may even be in the midst of such times. The Christian life is not a smooth ride to glory. We, we don't cruise through this life to glory. No, the road to heaven is uphill. At times it is rough, and it is met with many difficulties. That's the world in which we find ourselves, and that is the world in which Joseph and his brothers find themselves, as the time has now come, to bury their father. It's not a happy occasion. It is an occasion of deep pain and sorrow. So, let's walk through this passage together. It has much to say to us, that this is where we live. And the first thing I want you to note in verse 1 is the The affection of Joseph. The affection of Joseph. We read in verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face. What has happened at the end of the previous chapter is Jacob has just died. He he has breathed his last. And so obviously, Joseph, who has been separated from his father for, for those many years... And has now been reunited with his father. He's standing right at the at the head of, of the deathbed, and when his eyes close and he breathes his last, <laughs> Joseph just emotionally collapses. And he falls on the face of his father. Jo- Joseph is not a stoic. He, he's not immune to feeling the loss here. He just collapses and feels emotional sorrow. And this is one of the great sorrows of life, to, to, to lose a parent. I mean, there is an emptiness here that cannot be replaced. There, there, there is a sense of loss of security. It's almost as if the, the, the rug has been pulled out from underneath you and the one who has brought you into this world is now removed and there's a sense of loneliness. There, there, there's a sense of… I am now here by myself without my father. And it says that he he wept. He, 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 He wept over him uncontrollably, just bawling with tears. And then we read, and kissed him. He just began to smother with kisses again and again and again the lifeless face and body of his father as it lay there as if I just can't let him go. For the last 17 years, Joseph and Jacob have been been reunited. You, You recall that there was that time of separation after Joseph as a teenager was taken down to Egypt, and they They did not see each other for many, many years until they are finally reunited. And as we preach through Genesis and we go from narrative to narrative to narrative, sometimes we're not aware of the time span between one story to the next story to the next story. You just simply need to know that since Joseph and Jacob have, have been reunited now in Egypt, it's been a total of 17 years I mean, their hearts have been welded together. They have been cemented together in a a bond of fatherly and son affection for each other, and now the father is gone. The loss of a father is a monumental experience for anyone to go through, especially if you had a good father who cared for you. Um, I have suffered the loss of both of my parents. And I performed both of their funerals. And it does leave a great emptiness on the inside that is hard to fill back up. And so by way of application to you today, I would say this. That for those of you who still have parents alive, you need to fall on their face and smother them with kisses now while you can, because the time will come when they will breathe their last, and you will be unable to express your love and your devotion to them. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother. And this is a commandment from God, and it will be well with your soul as you continue to love a father or a mother that is still alive. May you heed that exhortation and even call a father today if need be. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 2, the preparation for burial, verses 2 and 3. And in verse 2, we read, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Joseph takes charge. Joseph is not the eldest brother. He's not the oldest brother, but he is now the the point man. He is over the nation of Egypt, and he is certainly over his 11 other brothers and he takes command. In fact, it's when it says Joseph commanded, that Hebrew word means he ordered, he charged the servants, the physicians to embalm his father. Now, the usual practice for burial among the Hebrew people was to bury their deceased loved one the very day that they died. But the Egyptians had a different practice, and the Egyptians embalmed their deceased loved ones. And Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt, and it is only natural that he would now follow the practices of the land of the people where he lives. However, the Egyptians carried out embalming as a cultic practice, a false religion. They believed in the afterlife. And they believed that embalming the body would guarantee the success of the afterlife for the one who has died. And they also had it carried out, the embalming process carried out by cultic priests, false teachers, false prophets. And so, Joseph will have none of that. And so, here, though, he will practice embalming as an Egyptian now, he has the physicians do it. He, he does not have the, the, the cultic priests uh, carry this out. And the, the historical background on this might be a little helpful to us right now. The Egyptians believed in the afterlife, as I've already said, and all of this was shaped by the cult of Osiris, which was a false god. And it taught that the body of the deceased must be preserved if that person is to enjoy the afterlife. And so, it would depend on your station in life what kind of embalming you were able to do. If you were poor, then you merely washed the body and dried it in the sun. If you had a little bit more money, you would pack the body with salt. If you had a little bit more money, then you would be one who would inject uh, juniper oil with salt into the body. But the rich, they were the ones who could afford this whole process. And I'm not gonna go through the embalming process because I'm a very sensitive man. And uh, it's, a, it's a, grisly, uh, a grisly procedure. And I, I read about it uh, this week. But suffice to say, they would drain the fluids out of the body. And they would put fluids in, and then they would wrap the body in uh, linen cloths, which is the process of mummifying the body. And it it was believed that that would guarantee them uh, a successful journey to their destination after death. In fact, uh, many uh, pharaohs would be put into a ship... uh, embalmed, mummified, and put into a a boat that they would be able to sail into the horizon of the future and go to a happy life. And so, that was the practice of the Egyptians. And so, we read at the end of of verse 2, So, the physicians embalmed Israel. Though, of course, Joseph has no such pagan beliefs or religious superstitions, but nevertheless has his father embalmed. So, verse 3, now, 40 days were required for it for such is the period required for embalming. In, in it was a very detailed procedure, as I said, and I'm going to spare us all those gory d- details. And at the end of verse 3, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. The whole nation went into a state of mourning over this man that they've never met. And this probably is to assume that Pharaoh has issued a day, or really a a 70-day period of of mourning. And the whole nation basically shuts down. Whenever a Pharaoh would die, it would be a 72-day period of mourning. And so for this to, to read 70 days underscores the importance of Joseph, how he has uh, arisen to this high place of prominence to be prime minister over Egypt, and how the people looked up to him, and how Pharaoh had the highest regard for Joseph because of the excellence with which he administrated the affairs of the nation. And so, if your father now dies, we want to honor him in this foreign land. And so the 70 days actually includes the 30 days past the 40 days of embalming. So it's a total of 70 days. Now, I want to tap the brakes here just for a moment. And I want to talk about life after death. We talked about that last time. But I want to talk about it again. And I want to quickly give you seven truths about life after death And as you hear these, these are all drawn from Scripture. I don't have time to go give all the cross-references. But number one, the soul immediately departs from the body. At the moment of death, the soul immediately departs from the body. Number two, the soul of a believer goes immediately into the presence of God, fully conscious You will never be more awake and alert five seconds after you die. You will be fully awake and alert in the immediate presence of God. Third, the soul of an unbeliever goes immediately into eternal punishment fully conscious. There's no halfway house, there's no purgatory. There's no second chance for an unbeliever to die. Immediately, they wake up in the lake of fire and brimstone. Fourth, the body goes into the grave or into its final temporal resting place. So, whenever there is a funeral, there is the body, and the graveside will be performed, and the body is put into the ground, though the soul is not there. The soul has gone either to God or to hell. Fifth, the body will be raised at the end of the age in the resurrection. At the end of the age, there's going to be a great resurrection. And when Jesus comes back, He'll give a shout, and every grave will open. And every buried body will be instantly and immediately resurrected and come out of that grave. Sixth, the body of believers will be raised to a resurrection of life with a new body. And in this new resurrection body, it will be perfectly adapted for the new environment in heaven such that this new body will never go tired, it will never go weary, that we will be able to worship God forever and ever and ever throughout all of the ages to come. And in this new body, there will be a heightened sense of pleasure and a heightened sense of joy within our body, such that we will eat from the the tree of life and drink from the river of life with pleasures 10,000 times times 10,000, And we with eyes will behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ with with glorified resurrected eyes. Seventh, the body of unbelievers will be raised to a resurrection of judgment with a new body. And it will be a new body that will be perfectly adapted for their new environment in the lake of fire and brimstone. It is a body that will never be consumed by the flames. It is a body that will never uh, perish. It will be an immortal body now suited for the flames of hell in which they, they, it would almost be as if they're in an asbestos suit of some sort and be able to, to endure all of the flames yet with a heightened sense of the affliction that will be felt in the body. No, we as Christians do not believe in pagan beliefs about the afterlife. We believe what the Bible has, has said to us concerning what takes place at the time of death and immediately after death. And I want to throw this in as well, which I said at the, at the early service that just flashed into my mind. What happens to a Christian who commits suicide? A Christian can commit suicide. Christians do commit suicide. So, where do they go? Well, the answer is if they're a true Christian, they have eternal life. And they will go immediately into the presence of God. It is a Catholic heresy that if a Christian commits suicide that they go to purgatory or that they go to hell. And that is not true. Suicide is an awful sin that inflicts pain on the family and friends and it is never to be excused. But some of you here today perhaps have had to go through that dark valley with a family member or or a loved one and you need to know if they are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, that none of his sheep will ever perish. So, let's keep moving through this passage. It's very relevant. Third, I want you to see, beginning in verse 4, the permission of Pharaoh. And there's much for us to learn here. There's one more matter, and that is bearing Jacob in Canaan but they're living in Egypt and Joseph, is prime minister of Egypt, he's not actually allowed to leave the country because you're in charge of the country. You're presiding over the entire nation. And so, you just can't leave the nation unless there's permission granted from Pharaoh. So, we read in verse 4, when the days of mourning for him were passed, referring to the seven days, 70 days of mourning, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. Now, that refers to Pharaoh's advisors, his counselors, his his inner circle, his power team. And he spoke to Pharaoh's household, and he said this, if now I have found favor in your sight, please... And I underscore the word, please. Please speak to Pharaoh. Now, we're left to speculate why Joseph would not go directly to Pharaoh, and the answer is not given to us. Perhaps the best plausible explanation is that he's hesitant to go directly to Pharaoh because it'll put Pharaoh in a very awkward position if Pharaoh says no. No. And so, there's a buffer zone here. And so, Joseph speaks to his advisors and says to his advisors, go to Pharaoh, and to lay the matter in front of them. But Joseph is holding this with an open hand and says, please. And this is what he says to say to Pharaoh. My father made me swear, saying, verse 5. Behold, I'm about to die. And at that point, he knew that his strength was leaving him, and Jacob was about to die. He's on his deathbed. So, behold, I'm about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please, second time this word is used, please let me go up. Meaning north from Egypt to Canaan and bury my father, then I will return. So he humbly requests permission to leave the country to go bury his father in Canaan. Now, this brings up two things. Number one, the importance of the land, the importance of the land of Canaan, because when God first called Abraham, who was then Abram, the land was a big deal to God. So, it was a big deal to Jacob where he was going to be buried in the land of Canaan because the land of Canaan was a big deal to God. So, therefore, it was a big deal to Jacob. Jacob. And in Genesis 12, in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country to the land, which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. In other words, you're not, you're not allowed to go live wherever you want to live. I have a designated chosen land, and I will lead you there, and you are to live there. And then God appeared to Abram a second time, and in Genesis 13, 14, God says, lift up your eyes for all the land which you see, I will give it to you. Just open your eyes. Look at the land. I'm going to give this to you. And then in Genesis 15, verse 7, a third time, God appears to Abram and said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And then, if that was not enough, a fourth time God reappears to Abram. And in Genesis 17, verse 8, God says to Abram, I will give you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I mean, this is critically important to God the land. And so, therefore, it was important to to Jacob, and God will appear to Jacob twice and underscore the importance of the land. Genesis 28, verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I mean... God will not let this go. He is focused upon Israel living in the land. And then again, Genesis 35, 11, God appears to Jacob and God says, I am God Almighty. That would get my attention. The land which I give to Abraham or which I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. This is why Jacob is making this deathbed request to bury me in the land. Because it is a designated portion of land that God has promised to give to His covenant people. I mean, it is strategically located really at the intersection of the globe, at the crossing points of Europe and Asia and and Africa. This little strip of land is the size I've told you of Dallas-Fort Worth. It's a tiny little piece of land. And yet, even to this day, world politics and world events just continue to circle around that tiny little piece of land. It underscores the importance of the land. It was in this land that God sent his son to be born in Bethlehem. It was in this land that Jesus lived and taught. It was in this land that Jesus was crucified upon the cross. It was in this land that Jesus was buried, was raised from the dead. It was from this land that Jesus ascended back to heaven. It will be to this land that Jesus will return at his second coming. He's not coming to New York. He's not coming to London. He's not coming to Johannesburg. He is coming to the Mount of Olives in the land that God has promised to give to Israel. I was once riding in the back seat... Of a car headed to speak at a conference with one of the most preeminent theologians of our day, man, Dr. Walt Kaiser, president of Trinity Evangelical Theological Seminary, who's written numerous books that we continue to use to this day in seminaries on just how to interpret the Bible. And I said, Dr. Kaiser, we've got about ten minutes until we arrive where we're preaching give me your best reason for premillennialism. Just put down the ace of spades. He said, the land, the promise of the land. He said, we can't allegorize that. We can't make it to be something other than that piece of dirt there that God has promised to give to Israel and how amazing it is they're in that land right now, as it will be in the last days. So the land's a big deal to God. The land became a big deal to Jacob, so the land was a big deal to Joseph. And he said, I would like permission to go to the land to bury my father. So, verse 6, Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear, and he granted him permission. Now, with every passage of Scripture, all Scripture is profitable, is relevant for our lives. So, what do you think we should learn from this on just for our daily Christian lives? And I think what we learn from this, as Joseph is under the authority of Pharaoh, that he humbly requests permission and prefaces it with "please" to be able to leave the country. And this is the way in our Christian life that those who are under authority, should approach those who are over authority. This is how a worker should approach his employer. This is the way a wife should approach her husband. This is the way children should approach their parents. This is the way church members should approach elders. This is the way citizens should approach government officials. What we see here is Joseph humbling himself and seeking permission to pursue a course of action. He's not demanding, and he's not just going off and doing it without permission. He is setting before us an example in godly Christian living. Learn this, that a humble posture is always the best posture. That an open, empty hand is the best hand to receive what you desire. A clenched fist cannot receive anything. A soft, gentle request is always better than a loud, haranguing demand. That's just even human nature. If you want something from someone above you, humble yourself and make the request. That's what we see Joseph doing here. Now, let's continue into verse 7. Fourth, I want you to see the excursion for Canaan. So we read in verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father, went up meaning north, and there are eight layers of this national funeral procession that that, that I want you to see. I mean, this is impressive. This is really a spectacular sight. I, I remember watching on television a few years ago when... Uh, when uh, George Bush, president number 41, died and his, his body was flown to college station and put into a, a car and there was this extraordinary procession that led him to where he was to be buried. I mean, I, I had tears. I, I had uh, goosebumps as, as I watched this uh, grand procession. And that's something of what we see here. Let me, point, let me point out these eight layers to you in verses 7 through 9. The first is Joseph himself. He, he will lead the procession. And then second, and with him all the servants of Pharaoh, this refers to the attendants in Pharaoh's palace. And then third, the elders of his household, referring to Pharaoh's household, this refers to all of the Pharaoh's advisors and counselors, his inner circle. And then fourth, we read, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. That's a staggering statement. This is all the national leaders who who preside outside of Pharaoh's household. These are high-ranking authority figures in, in, in Egypt. These are prominent figures. And please note the word all. A-L-L, all the elders of the land of Egypt. And that word will be repeated in verse 8, and all the household of of Pharaoh, excuse me, of Joseph. This includes all of his advisors and all of his counselors. Because remember, he's the administrator, the prime minister who's running the nation and would also include Ephraim and and Manasseh. And then six and his brothers, that's all 11 of them. And then seven and his father's household... Uh, this is Jacob's sons wives and their adult children and any service that they have. And then at the end of verse 8, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They did that as a indicator to Pharaoh, we're coming back. I mean, we're leaving a deposit here in essence, in, in, in Egypt. We'll be back. And then when we come to verse 9, it's the eighth layer of this procession. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. This is a a military escort. This is a sign of a very important prominent man is is being buried. This is a, a national Funeral. And a show of respect and honor for Joseph as well as for Jacob. And then verse 9 concludes, please note this, and it was a very great company. I mean, not just that it was a company. The word company here means just a very large number, host of people. But it was not just a company, it was a great Company, uh, The word great here is the word that's translated throughout the Old Testament as glory, the glory of God, which just means weight, the weightiness of God. Uh, the more weight a businessman had meant he had more silver, more gold. He was a weightier influence in the community. That's the word that's used here. <laughs> a very imposing, weighty company. But even he adds, as Moses writes this, it was a very Great company. Now, the word very here means exceedingly. And so this was quite a spectacular scene. I mean, Joseph rode first in front of the wagon, hearing Jacob's embalmed body. I mean, I've driven in funeral processions where I'm out. The point man, and the casket is coming in behind that that 's where Joseph is, and he 's followed by the national leadership of, of East, Egypt and the eleven brothers and families and sons and military chariots that could go into battle in war, accompanied by horsemen and soldiers this is quite the scene. I hope you can see it. And it's hard not to see something else here. It's hard not to imagine that this is a prefiguring of the Exodus that will take place 400 years later, that will travel from the exact same point A to point B, that will travel led not by Joseph, but by Moses from Egypt to Canaan and will take much of the same route because they both will come in from the east across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And so, this is what the Exodus will be like. I only wish after we finish Genesis 50, I could just keep going into Exodus and keeping that going. No one laughed. Okay. All right, now, come to verse 10. I want you to see fifth, the lamentation for Jacob. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, what is a threshing floor? A threshing floor would be where farmers would harvest their wheat and take it to the highest hill of their property, and the highest hill, they would build a threshing floor, which would be made out of stone, and it would be very, very flat. And the wind would blow the strongest on top of the highest hill. So you'd never build a threshing floor in a valley. You would always build it on the top of a hill. And so the farmer would take his pitchfork and put it into the wheat and just throw it up in the air and the wind would be blowing and make a separation and the heavy kernel would just come straight down and they would be able to easily gather it and, and use it for consumption. But the the outer, the the outer chaff that's of no use to anybody for anything, the wind just blows it away. It's just like a lightweight material. And it's what Psalm 1 talks about with the the righteous are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. It's the same picture there with the threshing floor. So, the point here is that they come to this threshing floor, which is elevated, and the people living in the land will be able to see what's going on up here. The Canaanites who are living in the land will be able to see them as they come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. So, they've crossed Jordan and they lamented, which means to wail with loud crying. With, now watch these words that are just stacked up together, a very great and sorrowful lamentation. I'll spare us doing word studies on all four of those words, but it just it's like crying on steroids. I mean, it is intense wailing and deepest sorrow. And within this this military procession in the funeral procession, there are different degrees, no doubt, of, of weeping. With Joseph, with his 11 brothers, there's the depth of Sorrow. And with others who had a more distant relationship from Joseph and Jacob, there would still be sorrow, just not to the same extent. But even today, it's a natural response when you see someone else crying. It brings emotion out of you. I mean, you can go to a movie, a sad movie, you're not even a part of the script, you're not even in the movie, and you find yourself crying. And so it's we we can understand how everyone here is drawn into the emotion of of this moment. And we read, and he Joseph observes seven days mourning for his father. Just bitter weeping, and all of this underscores and expresses how important his father was to him. And it underscores how important your father is intended by God to be to you, that if you would ever shed tears, it would be over the loss of a father or a mother. Verse 11, now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning Well, of course they saw it because they're up on the threshing floor in plain view of of everyone. They said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. And so therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which means in English, the mourning of Egypt. They were so moved by this sight that they renamed the place the morning of the morning of Egypt in just great honor you know what's interesting the last time i went to zambia in africa which is where david livingston the missionary made his way down into the heart of of africa to bring the gospel there to the africans Every place where Livingston set up camp and stayed to this day, the name of that place is the the Anglo-Saxon name in honor of David Livingston, that he had made the sacrifice to bring the gospel to us and not leave us to die and perish eternally in Africa. And all of the other towns, when you look at a map of Central Africa and Zambia where Livingston ended up being, they have regional names that come from the tribes in that area. But wherever Livingston went, he was so highly honored. In fact, when he died, the Zambians cut his heart out and they buried it in Zambia because his heart belongs to us. And they actually mummified his body, and they had to carry it on foot all the way to the coast. And their fear was that the cannibals would be able to smell the body of David Livingston, and they would eat Livingston's body en route to the coast where they could put it on a ship. And so that's why they embalmed Livingston's body. And they put it on a ship and that ship sailed all the way around and came to England and where his body is now buried in Westminster Abbey. But his heart remains in Africa. Well, these Canaanites see the the mourning over Jacob and what a great man he must be. And so we must rename this place. We will name it the mourning of, of Egypt. And so, this leads us finally to verse 12, the observation of the sons. And this is worth noting. Thus, his sons did for him Jacob as he had charged him. And this is so interesting that, that even after death, the sons are still submissive to their father. Even after death. The sons are still obedient to their father, what he had requested before he died. They could have reasoned, well, dad will never know the difference where his body is to be buried. Dad's in heaven. It doesn't really matter. But no, there was an allegiance to their own father that they will carry out his dying request. And it would have been a whole lot easier just to have buried him in Egypt, to not have to make this this long journey all the way back up to, to Canaan and the long journey all the way back, but their father asked for it. And so they honored their father and they respected their father, just like you need to honor and respect your father. And verse 13, for his sons carried him to the land of, of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the the Hittite. Verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. I I love that because Joseph is a man of his word. Joseph said, if you'll let me go, I'll come back. He let his yes be yes. And having buried his father, he kept his word and came back to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is an incredible passage. It's a very practical passage for us. Now, as I bring this to conclusion, let me be very personal with you. When you die, and you will unless Christ returns, when you die, what will be most important is not where your funeral will be. What is most important is not where your body will be buried. What is most important is not who will come to your funeral. How many people will come to your funeral? What will be most important at your funeral is where will you be? Because you're going to be in one of two places. You're either going to be in heaven or you're going to be in hell. And so the most important question about your funeral is where will you be? And there's only one way to be in heaven after you die. And that is to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, to deny yourself, to take up a cross, to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is most important in your life is that you are born again, and that you have experienced the miracle of regeneration, and that you have a new heart, and a new mind, and a new life, that the old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Do you know the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life? That is the most important question for you concerning your funeral. Is where will you be when everyone else gathers to remember you? May it be well with your soul in that day. And it can be if you would take that step of faith and entrust your life to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, the one who has conquered death and the one who alone gives eternal life. May that be your testimony this day. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we rise up to praise your most blessed name. We praise you that you are the God of life and the God who rules over death and over the grave and that you have given to us eternal life and we give you endless praise. May everyone in this house today find their rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and one day find their rest in heaven above. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I leave you with this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.